0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half this For this week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Forty Seven Ronan. These are uh, this is a group of uh, of samurai, or I guess you know Ronan to be more specific, uh, who after the death of their Damier, their lord, they planned a long and elaborate revenge mission against the uh, against the bloke who had caused his death. This is a tale of honour, of loyalty, of vengeance, and of course, you know, very naturally, also of horrible murder and also ritualistic suicide. There is a lot of that in this story. You've probably heard of uh, of Seppuku before and it is a big part of this story, let me tell you. So, you know, if you're, if you're a bit squeamish when it comes to blood and guts, well, mate, I'll tell you what, you're out of luck this time. Anyway, here's what happened, right? A Japanese daimyo or lord... Uh, whose name was Asano Naganori? Uh, he was himself ordered to commit seppuku uh, for an infraction at the imperial court. Now, some of his samurai, uh, essentially the samurai, essentially the Japanese equivalent of, of European knights, uh, they were none too pleased with their lord's ultimate fate, and they swore revenge on the person who was uh, responsible for him uh, being forced to to commit seppuku. And they say that revenge is a dish best served cold. And I tell you what, it was bloody freezing by the time they finally put their plan into act, to action and sought the revenge that they, uh, the, you know, that they were looking for so desperately. Forty-seven of the blokes in the in the former employ of Asano, they spent two years plotting their vengeance, and then finally struck. And then, well, well, I mean, you'll just have to have to listen to find out, won't you? Now, this is a ripper story. Let me tell you that. And uh, I want to thank Bart the Belgian for suggesting this. And I, honestly, like, I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think of Bart the Belgian as a nickname for this bloke. Honestly, you sent in that many suggestions. Obviously, you all know Bart the Belgian. Uh, over the, you sent in so many suggestions, and I've been, you know, struggling to say his name, which is Bart, I don't know, Van Gelu, Glu- I'm real, so Bart, okay, look, save me the embarrassment, Bart the Belgian, that, that's what it is from now on, mate, I hope you're happy with that, anyway, let's get to it, thanks Bart, old mate, here we go with a bit more Japanese history, you love to hear it, here's the tale of the 47 Ronin, off we go, <clears throat> we're going all the way back here, all the way back, to the beginning of... ...of the 18th century, the year 1701, uh, to Japan during a period in its history known as the Edo period. Now, Edo is an old name for Tokyo. The city was called Edo until 1868... Uh, and it was the de facto capital of Japan, while Kyoto was the official capital. Uh, Edo Castle, which is still around today in the center, center of modern, modern Tokyo, it was the de facto city government. It's where the shogun lived. In previous episodes, we've talked about the differences between the shogun, the military commander who effectively ran Japan, and uh, the emperor, who was more of a, a figurehead, Right. Um uh, and and of course as I say lived, lived in Kyoto as the official capital but uh, Edo Castle in the middle of uh in the middle of modern Tokyo the actual de facto seat of government and here is where our story begins now back then the Japanese daimyo right the the lords these are the vassals of the shogun or technically I guess of the emperor but really effectively are the shogun um these uh these these daimyo they were required. To spend quite a significant amount of time uh, in Edo, right? Uh, this policy was was known as sankin kotai. It was, uh, which translates to uh, alternate attendance, and it was designed to bolster the shogun's power over the daimyo by centralizing the realm, right? Preventing all the daimyo from being left to their own devices for too long, off in their off in their respective uh, the, the respective sort of land that they they ruled. They were brought under, you know, the, not necessarily the supervision, but they were at least a little bit close to the emperor. They would, or sorry, to the shogun. They would have been otherwise. Uh, and this sort of kept them on a tighter, on, on a shorter leash, you know what I mean? You, you, they're, there, they're, they're unable to plot and scheme and do whatever else because uh, the shogun is able to keep an eye on them as they as they alternate again between uh, their respective uh, homelands and and Edo, Edo, Edo Castle. So there are two such daimyo here, uh, Asa, uh, Asano Naganori, as I mentioned before, and another bloke, Kamei uh, Korachika, right? Now, Asano and Kamei, they're hanging out in Edo Castle as part of their Sankin koto. And the day our story begins in 1701, they were told that they were going to be put in charge of a welcome reception for for, for some envoys from the emperor. The emperor at this point is uh, Emperor Higashiyama, right? Now this is a big job. Got to get it right, right? These are these are very very important people who are coming from on on behalf of the emperor, right? All part of the pomp pomp and circumstance of being an uh, being an aristocrat. So you got to do it. Got to do it right. So to make sure that these two blokes learn all the rules and the regulations and the etiquette and whatnot needed to host, you know, these imperial bigwigs, these two, Asano and Kamai, right, they are put in the charge of a bloke whose name was Kira Yoshinaka, who was, was a koke or a master of court ceremony. Basically, the bloke who, you know, was in charge of a lot of the ceremonial aspects of, uh, of imperial life. Now, Kira was officially speaking technically speaking he was he was of lower rank than both asano and kamai a, a, a Damio did outrank a koke but the problem was this kira bloke he was a bit of a big shot in the shogunate and he, it does seem like he actually really knew it. the stories differ a bit depending on whom you ask but generally speaking you get the impression that old mate kira he did have his head lodged firmly up his own bum a fair bit of the time right so this self-importance really got in the way of a fruitful relationship between Kira and the two blokes that he was training here, Asano and Kamai, and, and they clashed pretty badly too. Now, could have been for a couple of reasons. See, we don't know exactly what the source of their uh, the dispute was, but uh, depending on who you ask, there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, some sources indicate that uh, the reason they didn't get on very well is because Asano and Kamai, they, they didn't know that they were supposed to give this bloke, you know, lavish, stately gifts or just a great big fat bribe for for helping for helping them, you know, be trained up on this etiquette, whatever else. So that then pissed Kira off and he started treating him like garbage and, and all sort of unwound from there. Alternatively, some sources say that it, it, it wasn't about the bribe, wasn't about, uh, you know, gifts, something like that. It's just that... Kira was just a real rude bastard who who treated them extremely badly just because he thought that he was miles above them, even though technically, in the you know in the strictest sense, he wasn't of a higher rank. But, uh, you know, he, he'd he get offended where they didn't know all the social intricacies of the court. They weren't respectful or courteous enough to him. Whatever it was, Kira wasn't a fan of them, right? And he ended up great, taking great offense with both Asano and Kamai. He was a real prick to these poor buggers who were, yeah, I mean, they're in over their heads as they were. They're trying to learn how to bloody impress these imperial bigwigs who were coming to visit, and they, they don't know what's going on. And Kira's making it worse. He's insulting them. He's being rude. He's not preparing them for this reception properly. All sorts of stuff. Now, can I right? He's got a bit of a quick temper, and it's not going well with him. Right? He's going bloody hell this bloke. I'm, I've added up the back teeth. I'm going to tell you, what, I'm going to bloody, I'm going to bloody knock him out if he keeps bloody. If he, you know, if he keeps talking to us this way, mate, I'm going to, I'm going to have words with him. I'm going to. It's going to, it's going to get a lot, lot worse than that. I'm bloody sick of this Kira prick treating me so badly, and uh, I, I might just bloody kill the bloke. I reckon. Now, Asana on the other, end, he goes, "Chill out, mate. It's all, it's all good, right?" He's a prick. There's no way. There's no two ways about it. He's treating us like a real bastard. But listen, we just got to get through it, right? Just take it on the chin. Get on with the job at hand. You know, and, and it'll all be right. She'll be right at the end of it, right? But Camo, he's going around. He's fuming. He's got smoke coming out his ears. He's that pissed off about the whole thing. So Camo's entourage realize, bloody hell, this bug. He's going to kill him. Honestly, Camo, if he gets one more insult thrown at him by this by this Kira player, he's going to bloody kill him, and that's going to be the end of us. That's going to be the end of everyone. We're getting such trouble that's that's going to be the end of everything. Because remember, Kira, you know he's quite uh, he, he's a bit of a bit of a mover and shaker in the uh, in the at court there. So, Camo's entourage. They want to avoid this trouble and what they do to solve this, you know, as, as the panacea that soo- that soothes all injuries, all the, the, the universal balm here, they just chuck a bunch of money at, to, at Kira. They just they just pay him off. They give him this enormous big bribe to smooth things over. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as he gets paid, Kira is turning around. He's being nice as anything, but just a kamai right? Only to Kamai, because Kamai's the one who's paid him this money, or these people did anyway, paid him this money. So now all of a sudden, everything's, you know, absolutely fine with him and Kamai. But funnily enough, it actually made, this bribe actually made him behave worse to Asano, because Asano's entourage hadn't paid any such bribe as Asano. Asano was dealing with Kira's rubbish just fine, and they didn't need to sort of try, they thought, he's not going to kill him, we don't need to smooth this over, it's going to be all right. But Kira's behaviour only got worse and worse and worse as he was ruder and more offensive than ever with Asano because he was pissed off that Asano wasn't also following in the footsteps of of Kamai, giving him a great, great big you know, bribe, he wanted to cash in again. Now, before I tell you what happens next year, it's, it's worth pointing out that honour and reputation meant a lot to the, to the Japanese nobility at this point, like a, a, a lot. Can't really overstate how much it meant, truthfully. The honour of not only yourself, but your family, your clan, very, very big deal indeed, right? So with Kira going about, flapping his gabba, insulting Asano, eventually it becomes too much for even his patience to bear. And as I, said, as I said, Asano's pretty stoic, but at the end of the day, he's come, you know, he's come to the end of his tether and he's had enough. And T- Kira eventually, one day, goes too far. He tests the patience of this poor bloke Asano who's been laboring under the insults and whatever else of, uh, of Kira for ages. But one day he went too far and he directly insulted Asano to his face and caught, well, I was going to say he called him. But there's some pretty strong language coming up here when I tell you what he called him. So if there are kids listening, make sure you're paying attention because here's something you can call your teacher. Have a listen to this, right? He called him a country bore with no manners. Imagine that. What a grievous insult. Imagine, imagine calling someone a country bore with no manners. And I'll tell you this, Asano, he wasn't going to take it lying down. So to defend his honour after this, as I say, this grievous insult here, to defend his honour, he drew his dagger, Asano, and he attacked Kira and he managed to gash Kira's face before he was actually pulled away by, pulled away by some nearby guards. You know, the two men were separated there. Now, this, this facial wound that Kira had, uh, had suffered, now, it wasn't fatal. Far from it. Kira was going to be just fine. Don't worry about that. But this didn't matter because Asano had violated the rules of conduct at Edo Castle. There was a strict prohibition of violence of any kind within the walls of the castle, and Asano had stuffed it. So in so severe was this infraction, right? In drawing a weapon, weapon and attacking an official of the shogunate within the walls of Edo Castle, that he was actually sentenced to death. And what's more, all of his property, all of his lands would be would be confiscated by the shogunate, and worst of all, his family, his clan, would be dishonoured. However, as a noble, he wasn't to be executed, as some of the lower ranks might be, not like a common criminal. Instead, he was ordered to commit seppuku. Now, you may have heard of seppuku. Uh, it's, the, it's the famous form of ritual suicide used to salvage lost honour by uh, disgraced Japanese nobles, but commonly associated with samurai. Uh, and it's pretty bloody grisly, too. Seppuku translates directly to cutting the belly, and uh, that's exactly... What would happen? I mean, if if you're looking forward to the blood and guts, here they here they come. Because what happens is this, right? Using a short, so you'd sit on the floor, using a short sword, you'd stab yourself in the guts, and then you'd rip the blade across your torso and essentially just disembowel yourself, right? Your guts would come spilling out, and that'd be that. So I don't know how that was supposed to, you know, restore your lost honor, but that's what would happen. That was the traditional method, anyway. But it wasn't just used as a form of capital punishment. You could be ordered to commit seppuku, of course, but there was—it uh, was also, <clears throat> in many situations, uh, expected that a captured samurai would commit seppuku as a matter of course, not just to reclaim the honor that they'd lost by being taken prisoner, but also to avoid torture and spilling the secrets, uh, you know, any, any secrets they had to the enemy. Interestingly enough. Seppuku didn't just dis, uh, involve disembowelment either. As the ritual developed, it eventually, uh, it eventually came to invariably incorporate a, a second for the condemned, a, a second person, usually a close friend. And the second would stand behind the condemned, who would be seated on the floor, as I said, right, and would chop his head off to hasten the death. Um, once, once the bloke had sort of disen- once the condemned bloke had disemboweled himself, he would then have his head chopped off to again hasten it, so he uh, so he wasn't uh, suffering for too long. Well, I say chop off the head. Actually, in ideal circumstances, it actually would be not quite chop off his head, almost chop off his head, not all the way, because the perfect decapitation from a, a seppuku second left the head just attached, just still attached to the neck there, right? And why, might you ask? Because seppuku in these situations, when it was used as a form of capital punishment, was usually done in front of a great many witnesses, usually of noble standing, of course. You know, it's a samurai at least who's, uh, who's killing himself here, so usually got a lot of people who are at least of a high rank watching this happen. And it was considered... Uh, Less than ideal for a freshly decapitated bloody head to bounce and roll across the floor all over them. So leave just a little flap of skin there to make sure that the uh, the head didn't bounce across the floor. But look, this whole thing, fascinating. Grim and grisly, obviously, but very, very fascinating part of Japan uh, of Japanese history. Particularly the ritual that grew to surround it during the Edo period specifically. Condemned men, would they'd get a bath, they'd get a last meal. They would write a poem just before uh, before they died, a death poem, very famous. Uh, and sometimes the bloke who was doing the head chopping would actually be an enemy of theirs, not a friend, uh, an enemy who was seeking to honour them as a foe, potentially, who had fought, you know, particularly with bravery or, or honour or courage or skill or whatever else. So a lot of stuff going on with it. And 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 the ritual changed as time went on. Eventually, you didn't actually have to rip your own guts out. Eventually, the second would actually be allowed to chop your head off uh, as soon as you'd stab yourself. And then, uh, it, you know, as time went on, it changed. So as they'd chop your head off as soon as you picked up the knife, and then after a while, they just didn't even bother with a knife. They just put like a fan or something in front of you as a, as a symbol. And then when, as soon as you'd reach out to get it, then chop off comes the head. Or rather, off doesn't come the head in an ideal situation. But this was, uh, you know, this is not something either that has gone away completely. Uh, it, it's you know often, and correctly so, uh, associated with samurai, with the, with the noble classes from uh, Japan's feudal era. But it hasn't. Gone. Um, many Japanese officers committed seppuku during the Second World War, uh, and there was even a bloke who won Olympic gold for Japan uh, for judo in the '60s, who uh, finally ended up uh, committing seppuku as late as 2001. So it's uh, it's still still kicking around a little bit. This uh, this this very grim and grisly ritual, as I say. Anyway, back to Asano. Back to the uh, back to 1701 here, Asano. He is ordered to commit seppuku by the shogun himself. He's sentenced by, uh, you know, essentially the the highest, the, the, the most important bloke in the country. Uh, and Asano does the very same day that he attacked Kira. So that was actually, you know, one of the very last things he did on Earth there, uh, the, the attack. By the end of the day, he's dead. Nasty way to go, of course. Nasty way to go. But his part of the story is over. We turn our attention now to his samurai. As I mentioned before, Asano and his family, they're stripped of everything. They're stripped of their, their lands, their properties, their titles, the rest of it, right? And the shogunate took over all of the lands and the properties and the title that they'd, uh, they'd just been uh, just been taken off them. Of. And his samurai, this meant, they're out of a job. They're unemployed. They have become ronin. Now, you may have heard this word before. Ronin, when it's translated, it roughly means wanderer or drifter, and it refers to a samurai without a lord or a master. Now, Ronan didn't have a great reputation throughout as much of Japanese history. And there's a very good reason for it. Um, uh, Ronan often couldn't, especially the ones who had, had previously been in, uh, in the service of uh, of masters who had who died, and especially in dishonour, they couldn't become full samurai again. You needed your lord's permission to start working for a different lord, and you weren't getting that with a dead master, were you? So the other occupations available to them as military men were essentially mercenary, bodyguard, or, like, criminal really um you know you just got the chase become a bandit or a highwayman or whatever else if you couldn't find legitimate work as a mercenary a body bodyguard or something like that. some of them went into you know being merchants or craftsmen or farmers or that sort of stuff but they were essentially seen as you know their honor was stained by the death of their masters in many situations and uh, and they, they were you know They had a bad reputation because, as I say, a lot of them did become criminals. So Ronan sort of had this this thundercloud hanging over their heads uh, in Japanese society at the time. And it was no different for these newly made Ronan that used to work for Asano. Most of them, they had about 300 or so, most of them, they went off to make the best of their situation trying to find workers they could. But some of them, 47 of them, to be precise, you won't be surprised there, they decided on a different path here. Led by a bloke whose name was Oishi Yoshio, right? These forty-seven, they swore to have revenge on Kira for causing their master's death with his insults and bringing about this dishonourable end to their, to their, to their, you know, to their Damio's life. They swore this oath in great secrecy. Of course, they uh, weren't allowed to seek revenge for a state-sanctioned execution. The shogun had specifically said, "This is the end of the matter, and I'm not, I'm not hearing hearing any more about it." So they were making an oath that was going to get him in a, get them all in a lot of trouble if they followed through with it. But that's that that demonstrates just how important honor was in uh, in, in Japanese society at this point. And uh, despite the trouble they were going to get in for uh, for you know for seeking vengeance in this way, seek it they bloody well did all the same. Let me tell you this: slowly but surely, plotting and planning away. To uh, to bring Kira to an untimely end and reclaim Asano's lost honor. Now, Kira, as you can imagine, right, he's a clever bloke. He's a political mover and shaker. He knows how to watch his back. He expected retribution of some kind from uh, from the Asano clan, and as a result, he surrounded himself with guards. He fortified his home in anticipation of a revenge attack from from you know Asano's Ronan or whoever else it was going to be. But the forty-seven Ronan, right? They're a step ahead of him. They realise that they didn't have a hope in hell while Kira was on his guard, and so they decide that they're going to bide their time and they're going to wait for the opportune moment once he sort of chilled out a bit. So they drift off. They get various jobs as monks and tradesmen and merchants and what have you, just like the the rest of them. The rest of three hundred, uh, uh, you know, new Ronan had. And They're trying to make trying to make themselves as as uh, inconspicuous as possible. And Oishi, their leader. He moved to Kyoto because, he, you know, as the leader of the black, he was obviously the most, um, the, the, the one that Kira was the most worried about. He moved to Kyoto and, uh, well, look, honestly, he turned into a bit of a loose unit. It has to be said, he'd go out of the taverns, he'd go out of the brothels, he'd get on the piss, hang out with um, <clears throat> women of negotiable affection, the whole deal, right? He's really getting involved. He gave every appearance of being just absolutely devastated at his master's death. Turning to the drink, drinking himself into depravity is his, is his way of dealing with his grief. Now, Kira at first, he wasn't fooled. He's going, no, no, no. I know he's playing funny buggers. I know something's going on. I'm going I'm to send me spies over from Edo to Kyoto. They're going to keep an eye and they're going to find out exactly what's going on here, right? And that's, that's just what happened. He sent his spies over, keep an eye on Oshi and see what he's really up to. But the spies come back with their report. The bloke's off the bloody rails, mate. He's getting on the sauce every night, hitting up the brothels, making an absolute mess of himself. He was. He'd even divorced his wife, these spies are saying. He's divorced his wife. He's lost his two youngest kids. His wife, wife's gone back to live with her parents. The whole thing's a bloody mess, and Oishi's made an absolute absolute turkey of himself with this, uh, with this whole situation. Now, Kira, pleased to hear it. Obviously, he didn't want Oishi for an enemy, but little did he know that this whole situation with Oishi going out, getting on the source, whatever else... All a cunning ruse. Oishi knew that he was being watched. He anticipated that Kira was going to send spies after him. He knew he was being watched and tailed constantly. So he was attempting to give off this impression of of a completely broken man, right? As for his wife, that whole divorce, he did send her away to live with her parents, but this was to protect her from from the repercussions that he expected once the revenge plot came to fruition. So as part of this plan, right, as part of this plan to look like an absolute degen. Oishi kept going out, kept getting wasted, going down the geishas, all sorts of stuff, making an absolute disgrace of himself. And eventually, all of Kira's spies, they come back to him, they go, mate, honestly, I don't know what you're looking for. The bloke, he's behaving like an absolute goose. You've got nothing to worry about. He's cooked, mate. He's cooked. So Kira goes, oh, well, bloody excellent then. Great result here. I've got nothing to worry about. Bloody Asano's dead. His running have all gone off, and their leader is behaving like a Adara. Don't even worry about it. You know, she'll be right. And so slowly but surely. He let he, he let his guard down and, you know, after all, there hadn't been a revenge attack t- as time went on. It seemed less and less likely it was going to be. Almost two years had passed since the death of Asana and Kira is now convinced he's got it made in the shade. Don't even worry about it. She's all good, mate. But let me tell you this, she was not all good as it would turn out and Kira would end up in big trouble for having let his guard down. Now, Remember all those Rona that I mentioned before, the ones who went off and became monks and merchants and tradesmen and and whatnot, right? During this two-year period, slowly, one by one, they all filtered into Edo, and they all got jobs and positions and whatever else that allowed them, you know, not immediate access— to Kira, but certainly closer access to him, you know, they lived in the same part of town or they got jobs that were somewhere connected to his, you know, his his affairs, whatever else. And one of them, right, the story goes, one of them went so far as to marry the daughter of the bloke who built his house. Right. And after after marrying this, uh, this daughter, he was able to sweet talk the dad into showing him the plans, the building plans uh, for Kira's stately home here, right, and what, with access to these plans, now the conspirators would uh, know it's floor plan, know it's layout, know how it all looked and where to go, you know, during this planned attack. So they're doing their reconnaissance, they're doing their espionage, they're doing what they can to make sure this uh, this planned attack on Kira is going to be successful. And towards the end of 1702, as the, as these preparations are sort of coming to fruition here, Oishi himself, right, he's over in Kyoto. He got together a great big stockpile of weapons for this for the 47 run which again, don't forget, there's a league. He's not allowed to do, this. he's not allowed to seek revenge for the killing of his master here, but he's doing it all the same, gets all these weapons together, and he went with them to Edo to meet all the others. Now the others, you know, they all get together, all in touch with each other, they come together and they meet and they plan how they are going to finally uh you know pull this plan off. After almost two years after the death of Asano, these forty seven Ronan they've come back together, they've looking they're looking at the building plans, they're you know, discussing all the information and intelligence they've got together, they're coming together with this plan of attack, and they are finally ready, after almost two years, I say, after almost two years, to avenge the death of Asano, their lord. On the fourteenth of December in seventeen oh two, in the early hours of the morning, the forty-seven Ronan, they put their plan into action. They're armed with swords, they're armed with bows. They creep up on Kira's house, Divide. they divide themselves into two groups, and they begin the attack. Now, before their approach, Oishi, he had sent messengers to all the neighbouring houses. He, you know, asked these messengers to explain why there were heavily armed men that were going to attack Kira's house, that they weren't robbers or common criminals, but they, 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 they were ronin, they were disgraced samurai who were on a mission of vengeance, and that all of the neighbouring houses, they were safe, they had nothing to worry about. This was nothing more than a two-year-long plan for 47 blokes to come together and, and reclaim the lost honour of their fallen master. You know, that, just that that old chestnut, right? We've all been there. The neighbours going, oh yeah, of course, yeah, oh, don't don't worry about it then. Anyway, as I say, divided themselves into two groups. Uh, one of the groups, led by Ushi himself, attacked the front, while another group, apparently led, led by his son, uh, Chikara, attacked the rear of the house. Now, as the attack began, four of the Ronin climbed the walls, subdued the guards on duty, and then climbed onto the roof of the house and announced the attack loudly. They repeated the message that this was a revenge attack for the death of Asano, and that they weren't there to harm anyone but Kira. And indeed, Oishi had forbidden the uh, the rest of the Ronin from hurting any women, any children, or anyone else who, uh, who seemed helpless. But they were ready for a fight, and I'll tell you this, a fight they certainly got. The attack had now begun properly. It had been loudly announced. There were drums beating, whatever else. And the Ronin, they surged into the house seeking Kira. Now, some of them joined their mates on the roof armed with bows, ready to shoot anyone who looked to be fleeing for help. Others rushed into the house to try to find this bloke they were looking for. But there they were met by Kira's men, who leapt to the defence of their master very willingly, but they were cut down mercilessly by the Ronin. They killed 16 of Kira's uh, guards and wounded a further 22 without any of the Ronin themselves being killed. When, uh, when some of Kira's men attempted to run to seek help, again, the Ronin on the roof, they were ready. They shot them, and uh, the whole thing very neatly done, very, very neatly done, except for one thing. As they took control of the house and, and searched up and down, they couldn't find Kira anywhere. They searched it from top to bottom, and he didn't seem to be in the house. Now, where else would he be? He couldn't have escaped. Obviously, the the, the blokes on the uh, on the roof with the bows keeping... You know, these archers had kept a sharp lookout that prevented anyone from escaping. But still, there was no sign of Kira. So, Oishi gathered the ronin together. He says, listen, you blokes, we've got to have a look. We've got to try to find him because he's obviously here somewhere. He hasn't escaped. We've got to go and search this place from top to bottom. We've got to sweep the house minutely, search absolutely everywhere. You've all seen the plans. You know what the place looks like. Every single room, we've got to, we've got to have a look in, right? Absolutely anywhere that Kira could be hiding, we've got to find him. So... On this second search, with these 47 blokes all combing the house, finally they find, hidden behind a wall hanging, an opening into a secret courtyard. And in this courtyard, there was a small building uh, that, uh, that was designed to hold firewood, but what it held instead, inside, was none other than Kira, flanked by two guards. Now the Ronan jumped in, slew the guards, disarmed Kira, who just denied being Kira. He just refused to give his name. He wouldn't tell him anything. He wasn't going to give in to what they were saying, but it did him no good because they knew, they knew immediately just by looking at him who he was, you know, even if, even if they'd never seen him before in their life, there'd be a way for any of these Ronan who knew the story of how their master had died to tell that this bloke was indeed Kira, the bloke who would cause the death of of Asano. And, Maybe you've already figured out how he was identified. It was with the scar that had been left on his face by Asano when he attacked him After that, uh, on, the, on, the, on that day where Asano died. He left an, uh, an open, a, a great big gash on Kira's face, and it was that that condemned him when these Ronin finally confronted him there in the courtyard. And with his identity confirmed, Oishi approached him, and in deference to his higher rank as a kokei. Stank to his knees before telling him that he and the other 46 ronin were here to avenge their former master Asano. And he offered Kira the opportunity for an honourable death. You'll never guess how, of course, to commit seppuku, as Asano had done. And Oishi himself offered to be his second and strike his head from his shoulders. However kira refused however he's there he's cowering in fear he uh, he, he, he rejects this offer of, uh, of of the honorable death that the uh, the ronin are offering him here and uh, eventually after several attempts to induce kira to commit seppuku Oshi decides he goes and en- look enough's enough i've had enough of this he orders the other ronin to hold kira down and he took out his blade and he decapitated kira himself and that was the end of kira the kokei however it wasn't quite the end of the work of the 47 samurai because they had come here they'd come to to do this grim work to reclaim their uh, their daimyo's lost honor and they intended fully to do that. And so, once this bloke had been decapitated, they took his head and the ronin left the house and they made their way to the temple that held Asano's grave. Well, in fact, it was actually only 46 of them who did this. Because one of them, after Kira was successfully slain, was sent back to the Asano clan to inform them of the good news and was, as a result, spared what came next, spared the ultimate fate of the, uh, of the 46 who went to the temple. Anyway, the 46 remaining Roman, they marched down to the temple that held Asano's grave, as I say, and there they laid down Kira's head and the blade that had cut it from his body as an offering to Asano. And then they gave all their money to the abbot of the temple as a further offering, which I think is a little bit of an augury that they kind of knew what was coming next. Because with this, their oath was fulfilled. They had nothing further to do. And so they promptly turned themselves into the shogunate. And this was a knotty old problem for the shogun. Let me tell you this. As these 47 or these 46 blokes walk in, they march in, blood still drying on their, uh, you know, on their outfits. And say, oh, we just killed Kira for, you know killing our, or being the cause of the death of our old lord there. Sorry about that. We did, we know you said we weren't supposed to, but we did it anyway. Sorry about that, old mate. But the reason this was a, you know, a problem for the Shogun was because by avenging Asano's death, the Ronin had actually acted with great honour, and they they had acted as required by the Code of the Samurai. Which you couldn't really be punished for doing, but on the other hand, they'd also directly contravene the Shogun's direct prohibition on revenge for Asano, which very much required punishment. So, a bit of a rock and a hard place for the Shogun here. What was to be done? The Ronin had to be punished, but they couldn't be punished as common criminals for, voting, for following their own code so strictly, and you'll never guess what the solution was to this problem. You'll never guess the solution that the, uh, that the Shogun eventually fi- and finally picked as uh, to be the ultimate fate of these, uh, these 47 or these 46 Ronin, I should say here. Oh, you did guess. Oh, well, well done. Yes, it, it was once again Seppuku. Yes. Well, I, I never thought you'd figure it out. These 46 Ronin, they were ordered by the Shogun to commit Seppuku and in so doing would themselves achieve an honourable death. And as you would expect, of course, honour was everything. Don't forget, all 46 of them complied with the order. And on the 4th of February in 1703, each one of them ritually disemboweled himself at the shogun's orders. All of them were buried outside the very same temple where Asano had, been, had also been laid to rest, Sengakuji Temple. You can still you can visit this temple. You can see their graves to this very day. And in ending their lives like this, they not only reclaimed their own, their own honour, but also that of Asano and his clan, and the Shogun actually ended up restoring a small fraction, only about 10% of their original holdings, but restored a small fraction of the Asano clan's holding back to the family, led by now Asano's younger brother. Many of the Ronin who had left Asano's service after his death returned to serve the clan, thanks to the sacrifices that had been made by the forty-sixth that died. And as for the 47th, he, too, returned to the shogun after he'd passed on the message. He returned to the shogun to face judgment, but he was pardoned, unlike the others, and he lived until 1747, when he was also buried after his death in the very same graveyard as the other 46. And that is the story of the 47 Ronin, who gave everything to avenge their daimyo, a story that has passed into legend and become immensely popular and famous both in and outside of Japan. There are plays, there are books, films, operas, artworks, so much more that have been inspired by this tale. Perhaps the most famous of these, of course, is the uh, the Keanu Reeves blockbuster film 47 Ronin from 2013, which was uh, one of the biggest box office failures of all time. Actually, it lost, it lost Universal tens of millions of dollars. But any way you look at this story, the story of the 47 Ronin, it has become, it's become an enduring part of Japanese history. A classic tale of loyalty, vengeance, and, most of all, honour. But that's it. That's all you wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the 47 Ronin. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Great to get across a bit of uh, of Japanese history. And uh, thank you once again to... uh, Bart the Belgian, for sending it in as a topic suggestion. If you'd like to send in a topic suggestion, I'd love to hear from you. Half-Assed is the website. And of course, there's a contact form there. Uh, if you want a link to the direct feed for the show, anchor.fm slash Half-Assed History. And of course, you can subscribe on Patreon if you'd like to support the show financially, patreon.com slash Half-Assed History. Thank you so much to all the patrons who support me week in and week out. Uh, I do appreciate it. And of course... Uh, Repay that kindness with a range of uh, of behind-the-scenes exclusive benefits, such as uh, uh, uncut episodes, early access, show notes, all sorts of stuff. that you can go and have a look at it. Um, And uh, finally, I want to note that the half History merch shop is basically closed. Uh, there are a very small number of small and medium t-shirts available for sale if you want one of them Um, uh, have a look at it if you'd like but uh, I do have longer term plans I think I mentioned this already I've got longer term plans to bring back merch but won't be for a couple of months Uh, uh, there are a couple of things that I'm wanting to uh, work on at the back end make sure I get it all all correct and then in in the fullness of time there will but there will be more merch that is the bottom line there will be more, more merch ideally hopefully uh, you know within the next couple of months but um yeah i'd i'd ask you to hold your. i've got a couple of questions about it but i can i'm sorry i can't be more uh, more detailed i'm i'm working out a couple of things behind the scenes to make sure that uh, the next round of merch is uh, is, is you know is isn't just the same stuff and hopefully will we'll, uh, we'll, will will interest a, you know a, a bunch of listeners maybe new listeners who didn't get their chance to, uh, didn't get a chance to get their hands on the first round so be with me anyway That is that for another uh, week of Half House History. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll uh, catch everyone, of course, next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a a question posed on Reddit, of course. This one comes to us from Redditor NoName101, who asks How did Japan manage to industrialize so quickly compared to other Asian nations when they were constantly under barrage from giant lizard monsters and world eating robots?